uh, let's get moving. Uh, to be honest, I wasn't supposed to be here today. Some of you guys maybe knew that, uh, but let me kind of tell you what transpired. I was supposed to be in Brussels this morning um, and, and leading a, a student trip there, uh, but let me tell you what happened and why I'm here today. So the, the, the flight uh, was Saturday at 1 o'clock. Uh, we were going to meet at the, at the church, the Smyrna campus, at 9 a.m. to get the team together, rallied up, get going. Um, well, it's Friday, and it's been a really busy uh, couple of weeks for me. Really just got behind on the eight ball. So Friday, I start packing my bags. Right? I'm leaving the next day. I'm not the best prepper there. but uh, So it's, it's, it's like 5 o'clock at night on Friday, and I'm leaving in the morning. Start packing my bags, suitcase, throwing in the floor, just tossing stuff in there and just you know, cramming to get together. And, and, and so, so then I pack my bags, and then me and uh, the family go sit down on the couch. I'm trying to spend some time with Callie and the kids because I'm leaving for, for eight days, and I won't see them. So just sitting there on the couch watching TV. It's about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, and me and Callie are watching some show on TV. I don't even know. And, and something popped into my head about Passport. Uh, I don't know what it triggered. It I was like, oh, I might need to get my passport. I'm getting ready to travel to Brussels, right? That would be smart. Uh, so, so I go back in my bedroom to, I keep my passport in one of two places, either in my room on top of my TV cabinet or at the church because sometimes we use it to make copies, to order plane tickets and things. So I go to the one place at my house. I look up on my TV cabinet. It's not there. Uh, it's nowhere to be found. So I look under the TV, uh, behind the TV. Maybe it fell back. Uh, a couple of nightstand drawers. Got to start looking through there. Um, okay, it's really not here. So it must be at the church office. So get in the car, drive down about 10 o'clock at night, and, and go over there and start ransacking my office. Uh, drawers, pools, shelves, everything in there, nowhere to be found. Went into the other areas of the church, other offices. Passports, nowhere to be found. Uh, then scramble, go back to the house. Surely it's got to be at the house at this point. So we go back, and we proceed literally to ransack and turn the house upside down. I'm talking under the beds, in the attic, every suitcase we've ever taken on a mission trip. I mean, we're gutting everything, every possibility. The house is, is just disaster. It's, it's destroyed looking for this passport and nowhere to be found. Panic starts to just set in it's just bubbling it's just coming up and uh and so so we spent i drove back to the church again like at probably 2 a.m uh, maybe i'll go again maybe i missed it let me go back there again no luck come back home start going through my entire wardrobe maybe it's in a pocket whatever i'm exhausting everything cannot find the passport stayed up all night long me and callie never went to sleep all night long no rest still thinking that that passport's going to be found well six o'clock the next morning I start to come to terms, right? I, I, I'm not going to be able to find this passport. What's plan B? i got to figure something out. This is not good, right? Someone's going to have to go in my place to lead this. We can't cancel a trip with nine other or ten other people and, and change everything because of me. So who can go in my place, right? And the easiest target was my wife. She's right in the house. Right? I can manipulate her. as She's got her passport. She's ready to go. She's been traveling internationally. Callie, I need you to pack your suitcase right now. I don't know what's getting ready to go down, but we got to prepare. Pack your suitcase. She starts throwing stuff in there, and Mariana's helping throw packing bags, and we're just panicking, ringing around, and she's preparing. She thought she was going to have a spring break at home by herself all week with no kids. All right, So she's like, 
Okay, she puts her yes on the table. She's a trooper. She's packing, and we start cramming. And, and I, you know, I still, maybe there's a hope of passport. Nothing. So we get around. And so what I do is I call the airlines. Okay, here's the deal. I've got copies of my passport. Surely this is going to work. Man, I've got copies. That, that's got to pass me through to get me on the plane to Brussels. This would be okay. So I call the airlines. United Airlines, I get on the phone, I tell them what, what's going on with the story, I try to play the God card, right? I'm leading a missionary trip. Uh, so they, they're like, Mr. Ford, I'm sorry, you, you don't have the real thing, you have an artificial representation. Your copy of your passport is not good enough. It won't save you. Right now, they're the supreme authority in my life. I have no position and have no authority to save myself from this deal. I'm just begging these guys. And they said, Mr. Ford, I'm sorry, it's not good enough. You have a copy, but you don't have the real thing. So more panic sets in. I start really scrambling. I call Pat in the morning. I'm like, hey, Pat, good morning. Here's what's going on. Everybody else is gone. Like Kyle's in New York and all the other teams have dispersed. Pat, here's what's going on, man. What, what should we do? Uh, so, so that was humbling. And then, uh, then, then so, so then we come to the, this awesome, this awesome uh, decision that we're going to call Jared Norris, who just got hired as a student pastor like a month ago. All right, Jared? So J- I called Jared. I'm like, cool, let's do this. Yeah, so I called Jared, and, and Jared and answers the phone. He's awesome. It's like 8.30 in the morning. No, it's, not 8, it's like 8 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock. And I said, J- hey, Jared, are you sitting down, man? <laughs> He says, yeah, I'm at the breakfast table eating with my family, my wife, and my kids. And I'm like, good, you're sitting down. Okay, Jared, but I need you to go to Brussels in two hours. (laughs) Can you go? I told him the story, and he's like, you're kidding, right? Your passport really, dude? No, I'm serious. Two hours, I need you to do this. Can you do this? And Jared says, let me talk to Katie. I'll call you right back. Hangs up talks to Katie, and it probably wasn't one minute later, and he said, buddy, I'm in. He said, I'm all in. Whatever you need, jump in like a trooper, man. I, I talked to his wife. She's good. Katie's uh, was awesome. They're just like, man, I'll go. I'll, I'll do whatever I can do. So I, I, I'm on the phone, and Callie's, of course, in the background, all ears at this point. She's wanting to know, what's Jared going to say? So as, as I say here, okay, Jared's going to go. Man, she's ecstatic. She's jumping up, yeah, Jared's going, awesome, Jared, thank you. you know, so she's going crazy, uh, and, and then so Jared leads the team. He gets down there. We depart from the, from the church. We go down to the airport, and Jared's got them, and they're in Brussels, and they're safe, and they're good to go, and he's a trooper, and he's doing incredible things, and it all seemed to work out. But I tell you the story, not uh, to tell you how I failed. That's not, so distract that. That's really not, that's not the point. Of the story, you can hit me later. But what is the point is, is I had told the, the United Airlines, I said, I've got the copies of the passport, and they said it's not good enough. You don't have it. What, what is required for you to travel far enough. Well, this leads into Romans. I promise it does today, uh, where, where Paul is continuing to talk to the religious Jews. He's still in that passage, and he's telling them that you have the law, Right, But that's not good enough. That's not going to be good enough. It's not the real thing. And you're, you, the fact that you have it is not good enough. And it's not going to save you from the judgment against God. All right, The real deal is the law when it's written on your hearts and you do what the law requires. All right, So that's where we're kind of going today. We've been, been soaking up Romans. And now we've, uh, we continue to talk about this intersection between uh, the wrath of God and the grace of God. Where they will intersect and we'll... 
ultimately celebrate that on Sunday uh, at Easter. And, and that, 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 uh, that force meeting together and the celebration that's behind us. But we study uh, this because we want to know God fully. And if we just focus on God's love and his mercy and we omit his wrath and we basically have half of the gospel a half gospel is no gospel. The full gospel says God is a, a God of love and mercy, but he's also a, a God of judgment and wrath. And if we truly want to appreciate God's grace and his mercy, we must first know that his wrath is terrifying, right? It changes the perspective, and that's why we study through this. That's why we're looking through this as a church. So here's the way it kind of worked out. Chapter 1, starting in 18... Paul started to unload and open up fire on the Gentile sinners who did not have the law. They did not know Moses. They never heard of Moses. They did not know the Old Testament requirements of the law. And Paul said through general revelation, through creation of the world, you, see, you look at the Smokies, you look at the mountains, the sun, he said, you, you've been, it's been revealed to you through creation, so it's not knowledge that you lack, it's just that you rebel the truth. You reject it, and because you have rejected, you're now inventors of evil, I've turned you over to yourself, to your messed up, debased minds, and, and you do now what the law uh, detests. You are rejecting God, and you're a re rebel in that. So now... We moved in last week to chapter 2, when then Paul turns the guns on the hypocrites. The religious Jews in the church, that once again they thought because they had the law, possession of it, that they were not a part of this open up fire. They were hypocritical. They loved God. They said they worshiped God, but their lives did not match what they were proclaiming. All right, uh, they, they, This is prevalent in the church today. It's one of the biggest reasons that the church has lost influence is because of hypocrites in our churches today. Right Now, we would call them practical atheists, people that say they love God, they love Jesus, but they walk around living a life that says God doesn't even exist. Right? I walk out of church and I... I'm going to live as if he doesn't exist. I'm practically an atheist. Uh, you profess that. But Paul is going to tell them that they're in the same boat as the Gentile sinners. They're in the same need of the gospel. And the fact that they possess it is not good enough. All right? So how, how that played out. Last week we talked about Paul because he said that we were saved by our faith. But we were judged by our works. All right, that works actually matter. Works reveal a heart transformation. That if we've truly been redeemed, our works are going to come out. You can't suppress it. It's irresistible. You will do those things. So last week, this judging by works, it opened up kind of a, some some good Q and A through the week that I've been processing, and and I want to I want to hit this really quickly because the, the the Bible says that every believer will stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.10, and it says that we will be rewarded for the things that we've done in the name of Christ, in the body, all right? Not for punishment, all right? There's only one heaven, but we will get, be given rewards for our work. So we're judged by those things, not punishment, rewards. 
The opposite of that is the unbeliever who will stand before God at the judgment seat, the white throne of judgment that says that every evil thing I've done to reject God in my life, I will stand before him and I've been storing up wrath. And there will be different levels of punishment in hell because, because of what I've done. So there's one heaven, one hell, levels of reward. I wanted to hit that because we had some good Q&As last week. So today, where we're going is it's not, not about perfection, it's about progression. Right? Christianity is about, uh, not about us being perfect and, and, and having perfection, but it is about the pursuit of perfection. Loving God, hating sin in our life. We will screw things up. We're going to mess up, but we never embrace sin. We never will fulfill the entire uh, requirement of the law, but our pursuit in it reveals Christ in us. All right, that's where we're going to head today. So Paul, as he's laying out these, these ideas to these religious Jews, he knew they were going to reject what he was saying. He knew they were going to reject this kind of gospel because it said that they were not special. They were not favorites of God. They didn't have an ethnocentric pride that they needed to have. They weren't special. He says they're going to reject him. So what he does in Romans 2, 12 through 16 today is he's getting out in front of their objections. He's going to let them know, continue to let them know that they're not favorites of God, that he doesn't judge based upon what you have or who you are. So let's pray before we do. But go ahead and go to Romans 2, um, if you're ready. Romans 2, get your devices, your Bibles, all that good stuff, and let's get into this text today. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, incredibly so much. We are so blessed to be able to have... Uh, the requirements of the law, the, the Testament, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the scriptures that you've laid before us are so readily available in our lives. It's everywhere. God, that is a blessing. But God, the fact that we have that knowledge, we have that information, we have that readily accessible does not save us. You're clearly going to speak to us today. This is not the hearers of the word, but the doers. God, I pray today there's some people in the room that are, that are hearers of the Word. They come in Sundays, they hear the Word of God, they might even read the Word of God, but they're not doers. I pray that you start working that out in their lives through this text today. Because when our knowledge is real, our knowledge gets noticed, and it does not die with us. The world sees in our works. Teach us today. We pray it in the precious name of Christ. Amen. All right, so Romans 2, uh, we're gonna, we're, I'm going to rewind one verse uh, from last week. So here's what Paul says, For God shows no partiality, all right? For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. He's talking about the Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All going to face judgment. Now go back to 11. This is a reminder, but, the, but Paul's basically saying... No partiality. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't see your face. He's blind. There's blind justice. All right? That he doesn't, he doesn't look at your wisdom, your knowledge, your reciting of Scripture, uh, your, your, your popularity, your fame, nothing. God shows no partiality. He's trying to knock down this ethnocentric pride that the Jews had and said, We're Abe's people. Surely you're not talking about us, Paul. We've been chosen. We're the Israelites. You're, we're not those people. And he's saying, no, he shows no partiality. 
And then he goes in to let us know in 12 that the Gentiles who do not have the law, they will face judgment. Remember creation? He revealed himself. They will be judged without the law. All right. Then he says that the, the religious people who have sinned under the law, they're going to be judged by the law as well, that no one is going to be escaped or to escape, will be to, able to escape the judgment. Everybody falls in there. There's no excuse. We'll all stand before God in judgment. He's trying to knock down their, their idea and knock down these objections. Okay, um, So he keeps referring to the law. All right? He's seeing the heart, but he keeps referring to the law. In the, New, in the New Testament, every time that there's a reference to the law, we need to know what that means, okay? Uh, specifically, uh, it, it speaks of the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, all right? The, the knowledge of God, the Mosaic law that God gave to the people of Israel, but generally, it means the Old Testament as a whole. And he says, this is the measure to which we will all be judged in the law. Now, here's the deal. Here's what you need to understand why there keeps to be this reference of the law. Not to let us know the expectation that we have to pursue in the law, that we all have to fulfill the perfection of the law. Not, not they got expectation, but it is the standard. The standard is perfection, the law to a T. But here's why he's letting us know. He's letting us know because he's saying you will never, ever, ever be able to fulfill the requirements of the law when you stand before the judge. When he's going to measure you up against the judge, you don't stand a chance. Insert Jesus who fulfilled the law. Every requirement, perfect, spotless. In Christ, that is how you fulfill the law, not by your own accord. So that's this measuring stick. He's constantly letting him know you'll be measured by this you need the gospel. You're never going to fulfill it, religious Jews. It is only by Christ that you will fulfill the law. So that's what he's keep hitting with us about this. And he's letting them know that no one's going to escape. Let's go into Romans 2, 13. And he says, For it is not the hearers of the, of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So, so on judgment day... All right, on Judgment Day, there will be uh, tribal African people who have never heard the Bible, can't spell the Bible, don't know who Moses is, don't know who God is. They don't understand anything about the law. They've been pierced with everything, and their bodies are pierced with everything except their heart, and they don't know the law, right? They think circumcision is like, uh, I'm, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything funny there because there's really nothing funny about circumcision. Uh, but, but he's trying to set up the stage between the two. He's basically saying there's the tribal African, all right? And then there's the, the American who, who can recite Romans, who has John 3.16 tattooed on his arm, but not in his heart. And that God is not going to look at the tribal African and say, you can't spell my name. You don't have a Bible. You can't recite anything and, and say you're out. And then turn to the American who can recite more scripture than Paul and says, you're in based upon that. He says, no, it is the doers of the law, not the hearers of it. And that God shows no partiality in this. That's what he's letting them know. But I want to marinate for a second because 
I don't want anyone leaving uh, believing that salvation is by, by works, all right? There's always this tension. Hey, man, are you, pre- are you preaching a works-based gospel? What's going on? What's Paul saying? He's not contradicting himself. Romans 1.16, he clearly says that we are justified by our faith. It is our faith, through faith, that we receive the righteousness of God. So what is he saying? Why does he keep going back to the works and that we're judged by our works? Why are they so important? Now, here's what Paul's saying. Paul says that if you've truly been redeemed by Christ, if you have authentic faith, if your faith is real, that works will come out of you. There's no possible way that you will not have some level of works that will come out of your life. That you can't just sit on your salvation and rest and have no fruit to produce. He says it's not, it's not possible. The, the works will give evidence to the faith that you have. And James speaks of and uses the example when he's talking about faith is, is useless and worthless without works. He refers to, uh, to Abraham and Isaac, right? He says, Abraham, you say you have faith, man, but I'm going to put it to the test. I wanna, I'm going to lay a test before you to really see if your works match your faith. He says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Put him on the block. And that's exactly what Abraham did. He showed that he had authentic faith by his works. He was a doer, not a hearer. And that's the principle that Paul's trying to get to understand that is the doer that is. Now, the doer is not perfect and sinless. They don't, they don't fulfill the law. That's not what that is. But there is a pursuit of perfection, a progressive movement towards killing the sin in our lives, loving everything that God loves, hating everything that God hates, and we may fall short, but it is a pursuit, a perseverance to the saints that we will never, ever, ever stop fighting and pursuing the righteousness of God. That's what it is. That's what he's laying out before this. So here's what he's saying. The New Testament says that everybody who has been redeemed and the Spirit lives within us is a doer. So be a doer. Don't be a don't-er. All right? A don't-er, here's what a don't-er does. I don't want to commit to church every single Sunday. I don't want to serve in the church. I don't want to give my money and tithe for the advancement of the gospel. I don't want to reach the nations. Send somebody else, not me. I don't want to go all in with Jesus. Because then somebody's going to say, I'm a radical. I, want, I don't want to go all in. I want to go in half seas. I'll give him something, but I'm not going to give all of it. A don'ter. You don't want to be a donor. That's what Paul's saying. He says that true faith is going to produce a humble service, not a selfish, lazy pride that says, my time, my money, I'll do what I want to do. I don't need to do those things. Nobody's telling me what to do. That only reveals the heart of someone who loves themselves and not loves Jesus. Don't be a donter. Be a doer. That's what he's laying out before this. So here this is, this idea that these works matter. Works matter. We're judged by those things. Go to James 1, 22-27. We're going to come back to Romans, but go to James real quick. Hey, real quick, rapid fire. Who wrote the book of James? James? Yes. Man, if y'all got that wrong, I was going to resign today uh, after church. Uh, we got to know that. So James wrote the book of James. And let me tell you who James was. James was a, he was the half-brother of Jesus. And here's what James did. James 
tried to have Jesus, his half-brother, institutionalized when he said that he was God in the flesh, that he was a deity. So half-brothers, James and the other half-sisters, they get together and they try to seize Jesus and they're going to institutionalize him and say, he's insane. Our brother is insane. So how is it that James went from that position to now to which he's writing a book and the holy canon of Scripture, right, about his half-brother Jesus, what happened? What changed? What did James witness or see that made this drastic change? What card did Jesus play to convince his brother that he wasn't just his half-brother? Are you ready for this? Resurrection from the dead. That was his card, right? When your half-brother who claims that he's God, when he dies, he's crucified on a cross, and you see the blood and water spill out, and then he goes into a tomb for three days, and then he rises from the dead, reveals himself to you, comes down and sits down and eats fish and bread with you. He's not your brother anymore. He ceases to be your half-brother at that point. James saw that. Resurrection from the dead, you're not crazy anymore. You are truly God in the flesh. I've got a half-brother, right? And my half-brother, if he ever does anything like that, he's not my half-brother anymore. I'll believe him if he does that. I'm going all in. That's what James did. He says, because of this, now I've seen your death and your resurrection, I'm all in. All chips go in now. You're not my brother anymore. I believe it. So that's what he's doing. And watch what he says about works, how important it is where he's at. James 1, 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now leave that up for just a second. Go back to 22. He says, don't deceive yourself by being a hearer of the word and not a doer. All right? Don't make this, this deceiving yourselves is, is the translation. It means a spiritual miscalculation. Don't make this grave, grave penalty of spiritually miscalculating where you are with God and deceive yourself by saying that you're a hearer of the word and not a doer. I'm going to church every single Sunday. I deceived myself for years. I sat in the seats of, of pews or seats hearing the word of God. And what I told myself, I didn't used to do this. God, I wasn't even in the building. Surely you've got favor on me now because I'm sitting here hearing the word. I hear it every week. I promise you I win on Sunday. Can I get back to my life and do what I want to do? I did that over and over and over again. I was a hearer and not a doer, and I deceived myself. Some of you in here today, that's exactly what you've done in your life. You might have even been a hearer since you were a child. I heard the word. I go to church. I study it. I understand it. But it's never manufactured and, and revealed itself in a manner that says, I'm all in for Jesus Christ. Hear, not a doer. Look what else he says in 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks at, at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, the pers and perseveres, being no hearer, he forgets but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Works. Visit orphans. Widows. It will manifest itself through service. Serving people. Working. Humility. No longer me. Serving God. It's going to play out in my life where people notice. My knowledge is noticed. The world knows who I serve by how I serve. Right? That's what Paul's trying to get him to understand through this text. So here's what I want you to know. As we read that text, the idea of works to us can come off with a very negative connotation, can it? Right? Works, we don't like that word. Number one, first thing most of y'all think of when I say that is, okay, tomorrow morning i got to get up in my car and get on I-24 and head to Nashville. Work, work, negative. Oh, i got to work. This is begrudging to me. I don't like working. And God says, no, these works that you were created for, Ephesians 2 says we're created for good works that we would walk in, is not the begrudging submission of God. It's not to walk around and say, all right, I'm going to go to work, God. I'm going to serve you in the church now. I'm going to give my money. I'm going I'm to go serve people down at the homeless shelter. I'll do these things for you, God, and begrudgingly submit as if God was walking around and saying, you wipe that smile off your face. You look miserable because you're working for me now. That's not the sovereign king that we serve. He is a life giver, not a life taker. All right? He doesn't take anything away. He does not come to steal. He comes to give life and give it abundantly. He says, in your works, that is true life. And I'm not trying to take anything away from you. And your begrudging submission does not do it for me. I get no glory in it when you put your head down and just do it because you're trying to work your way to salvation or you think that you have to earn it. But because you realize, here's, here's, where, here's the root of it. When you understand the gospel that you were dead to God until he rescued you from your death, saved you, he created you, and then he bought you back and he rescued you from his wrath, out of that knowledge of the gospel... Now I want to go serve him because I love him, because I understand his grace, his mercy, and I know where I was standing. That makes me want to go do good works, all right? Now, I'll explain it like this real quick. Marriage, man, I, I've discipled some college guys. They're, they're young. They're not, they're not married yet. And, 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 man, if they were to come to me and say, hey, R.C., tell me about marriage. Tell me about marriage, man, because I, I think I might want to get married one day. Can you tell me about marriage? What if I responded and said, well, I ain't cheated on her yet. Uh, you know, she, she's all right. I mean, I'm still in it. Uh, man, she cooks really good lasagna. And, and uh, man, she takes care of the kids. House is pretty clean. She's doing all right. Man, I, I think I'm safe with her. I don't want to take a risk. I, I'll stay in this marriage. I'm probably not going to divorce her. I'll stay obedient. I made a promise to her. I'll do that. Man, is that moving anybody in their right minds? Absolutely not. They're, they're not going to say, oh, marriage, R.C., that was amazing. I want some of that. Can I get that? Can I be miserable like you? Really? Can I get some of that? No. That is not the same. But what if I say, what if my response was, man, marriage, you want me to tell me about marriage? Let me tell you about Callie. Let me tell you about her. Number one, she doesn't complete me. I'm a whole person. Because Christ made me whole. 
We're not half people, and our spouses don't complete us. Christ did that work on the cross. All right? But here's what she does do. She makes me a better lover of God. She holds me to accountability. She challenges me. She inspires me. She gives me joy. When I get home every day, I cannot wait to see my wife. I love to serve my wife. I love to do things for her, not because it's obedient and God told me to love my wife, but because I love her, that's why I do those things. That is the kind of service, the kind of work that God is trying to get us to understand in this perspective of good works. He does not delight in begrudging submission. Okay, I'm going to go do those things. He's much, much more, and he promises a greater joy. So, so what keeps us from our work sometimes? Things like my time, my money, I don't want to do it your way. I got something really good in my life that makes me have joy. I really enjoy doing this. And you think that God is the one who's going to come to steal your joy away from you and steal all the things that you love. And he says, no, no, I didn't come to steal. I came to give you something more, more abundantly than you think you have right now. And when you understand that, the tables are turned, and everything that you have right now that gives you joy and is preventing you from good works is gone, and it vanishes. Because you won't be carrying any of that stuff with you on the day of judgment. You'll be, it'll be all you, all by yourself, and anything you insert in the way is going to be gone. All right? So here's, here's this, this, this idea. Let's pick up in Romans 2, 14 through 15, and we'll close it out. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. So here's what's going on here. All right, he's back to the Gentiles again. And he says, last week we introduced a thing called mediate general revelation, where God revealed himself to all of these people, to everyone in the world through creation. Like we look at the Smoky Mountains, we look at the beaches on Destin, and we say, there's a God. Man didn't do this. God did this incredible. So he calls that immediate general revelation, the mediation between God and nature. Here it is. Or God and man, there it is. So now in 14 through 15, he is introducing another theological concept called immediate general revelation which means this he calls it the conscious but here's what happens at the birth of every man before we take in any breath in this life god has stamped morality on every single person's heart a conscious that knows right from wrong moral immoral right from the birth that you had you knew from an early age that it was not right to steal to murder, to cheat, to, uh, to sleep with another one's spouse. You know that because God stamped it on you. You know right from wrong. And he's saying there's another excuse. Everybody's been stamped from this. Everybody, the Buddhist in Thailand who doesn't know the law, never heard about Christ, has been stamped on his heart. And he knows through creation, immediate general revelation, and immediate revelation that God exists, that that's not the issue. He also says that the soccer mom, the good moral soccer mom at the park also has been stamped 
with right or wrong, morality, general uh, revelation. Everybody has been stamped with this idea, and then no one has an excuse. That's what Paul is laying before this. So here's what we're going. So philosophers will call this, this idea, uh, that's a Latin term called ius gentium, and that means a law of the nations, that it's written on the hearts of men. That's what 14.15 says, that the law has been written on their hearts, that moral stamp that God said, you know it. You call it your conscience, but it has been stamped on you, and it's called ius gentium. Everyone's got that, okay? So let's pe- keep going in Romans 2.16. And he says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. All right, so on Judgment Day, on Judgment Day, we will all stand before God naked. All right? Everything that we've ever thought, every secret, that's what he says, the secrets of men, everything you've done in dark spaces, everything that you've done in the light, every thought that you've ever had in your entire life in direct rebellion to God, that you will stand before God naked. That is a terrifying thought. You think about that for just a moment. Standing before God, you don't want to stand in a position like Adam and Eve where you're trying to cover yourself up from the things that you've done wrong. You can't cover your sin. There's nothing in the world that's going to hide anything from God. Every thought, every action that you've ever done, and that is terrifying to stand before Him. But here's the beauty of what God says that he does. He clothes his believers, his people, with this robe of righteousness. So when you stand before God, you are not naked anymore. God's not going to see all of those things and judge you according to those things. The robe of righteousness covers you, and you're no longer naked. Look what Isaiah says, uh, Isaiah 61.10, who wrote this, the prophet Isaiah, uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The picture that we see, here's the picture that we see. Jesus Christ the Father comes to us and clothes us like a father who clothes his adopted, chosen son. See, we need to remember we didn't inherit the kingdom. We weren't born into God's family. We were born separated from it until God adopted us into his family and chose us. And we see a picture of the father wrapping this perfect, spotless robe, addressing a child in a very intimate way and says, you are not naked anymore. God doesn't see every dirty thought that you've ever had, every rebellious action that you've ever had. He doesn't see. He sees a perfect, spotless, white as snow robe of righteousness that covers you, and you are declared righteous by God because you wear the robe of righteousness. We all want to be wearing the robe of righteousness. How do you get it? You believe in the gospel. That you were born separated from God, condemned by God with no ability, no ability on your own accord.
to obtain the righteousness that he requires. Nothing. That you are fully aware and willing and understanding that you are under the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Until God said, I'm, I'm going to do this myself. I'm, I'm putting on flesh. God incarnate comes down in the form of Jesus Christ who lives the perfect sinless life that we could never live. Who obtained and he, 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 he surpassed the law. Every fulfillment that the law required, he fulfilled it in one. He says, you will never do it, but I will. And when you understand that the wrath of God and the judgment of God is right and just, and he has every right to do that, it is only then that you will escape the judgment of God. See, for believers, the, the judgment that, that Paul keeps talking about is not a fearful time. It's where the grace of God is going to meet. And everything will be made right, and everything will be made just through Christ. As we close and we wrap, out, uh, wrap this up today, some of, you, some of you in here today, you would consider yourself hearers of the word. I've been to church. I grew up in church. I, I, I was baptized as a child. I, I, uh, and I gave my life to Christ at camp when I was eight. You've heard the word. But you can look at your life, and you work this out in your own place. You can look at your life, and it's never radically moved into a position where it's actually moved to doing what the law requires. Doing is not sitting in the seats on Sunday, by the way. It's what doers do. They worship corporately. They love their church. They're committed to church. But it is not exclusive to you sitting in the seat that makes you a doer of the law. Is it, does it invade the other six days a week, the other 24 hours of every day? Does Christ invade those spaces? Or does he invade an hour and a half in here on the morning? You are, if, if that is you, you are a hearer, not a doer. And you need to work that out today. You need to come to terms. First service, we have people that said, that's me. That's me. I want Christ. I want that robe. If that's you today, you go talk to somebody. Because that's the goal of why we study the t tough passages. Repentance, grace, mercy. Not to be fearful of the judgment. As we... Man, as we, we get ready to prepare our hearts for Easter this weekend, God has laid someone on your heart that needs to come here to hear the gospel. Those cards, as I said, they're not for you so you know the times. Those cards are attached to souls. Souls that are currently in a position to face the wrath and the judgment of God. What are you going to do with it? Because the plan is, here's God's master plan for reaching all of his chosen people, is to use you to share the good news of the gospel. So when you leave and you start thinking about the people, do not invite them to church. Don't say, come to the creek. They don't need the creek and they don't need church. They need the gospel. That is why they come here on Sunday mornings. That is why they need to come here on Easter. When you lift up church and you lift up the creek as the almighty power, there's no power in salvation in that. And they will leave this place attending an event and it will die at that moment. 
But if God can do the supernatural work of reviving the dead, that's what he does. We play our part inviting. He speaks the gospel. He wakes the dead. But we have our part. Will you play the part in God's advancement of the kingdom? Who's God laid on your heart? I'm going to give you guys a moment to, to process that. Let's pray through that. God, you're doing an incredible work in, God, in our church with the study of Romans. So challenging to so many of us. We leave weekly with convictions of, of wrestling with things as I, I do myself when I prepare to speak. But God, we pursue to know you more every day, even when it's tough, even when it hurts, even when it makes us uncomfortable, because our pursuit as followers of Christ is to know you more every single day. God, help these words, this knowledge of the passage work itself out in our lives in a manner where it gets noticed by the world. That if we need people to be moved to be doers, they would seek how they can go do that. And they would cease to be hearers of the word. We love you so much. Jesus Christ, we thank you for interceding on our behalf to providing a way, a portal to speak to our Heavenly Father. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.